0: As great as this group is, I'm certain that there's somebody in the room who has an enemy. Um, maybe not, but you know, I think most of us would acknowledge that there are from time to time enemies that we cross paths with. But I think most of us would say that uh, I can't think of any enemies. I don't know who's an enemy to me. I'm a nice guy. I do my best to pull my load at work. I, you know, nice to my neighbor. I. Keep my posting to a minimum on Facebook. Not having too many enemies that I can think of. I would say, okay, fine. You may have a very blessed life, but I want you to think with me for a second spiritually. Consider the question do I have any enemies from a spiritual side of things? Um, The Bible says that we have at least three enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. We're Certain of that the flesh of course is this stuff that we carry around with us that causes us the distress It does you know the wandering eyes the loose lips the you know dull mind Of Course we have the devil as an enemy according to scripture whom we've been battling as a race since the garden Uh, The enemy of God of course loves to see us fail attacks us when we're weak and tired orchestrates the plans of all these enemies to accomplish his purposes to bring us to destruction And then we have the world, who the Bible describes as our third enemy. That is the worldly system, the things, the the environment in which we live, that is opposed to God. We live here, and of course it is an enemy. And not everybody in this world, even if they don't know Christ, um, is that friendly towards our beliefs. Um, Those who don't know God, as friendly as they may be, or seem to be, are not ultimately committed to your success, your spiritual joy, your eternal joy. And so the Bible lumps these three into one category called an enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We have enemies. And with enemies comes distress, at least at some level. And distress takes all sorts of shapes, physical distress, mental distress, emotional, spiritual distress, etc. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 119 and we're going to see what the psalmist has to say about our enemies and about the distress our enemies cause us. Psalm 119 verses 81 through 88. This is the Kaf stanza, K-A-P-H, transliterated. So we're going to begin in verse 81 and I'm going to read through 88. All your commandments are sure they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. In this, in this short stanza, the cough stanza, I want to show you the symptoms, the causes And the cures of distress. We all have distress whether we want to admit it or not. Where do they come from and how do we deal with them? So here let's look at the symptoms of distress verses 81 through 83. If you are indeed a Christian here this morning, one whose heart has been renewed, whose sins have been forgiven, who are following Jesus Christ your Savior, You can expect, you can expect the world, you can expect the flesh, you can expect the devil to cause you some distress, to be a problem for you, and in fact, to abuse you from time to time. The opposition a genuine believer experiences is something that the Apostle Peter told us. He says, don't be surprised if you're going through these things. This is normal experience for the Christian. Paul told Timothy similar things. If you suffer for doing wrong or for being stupid, We say that you deserve such things. Doesn't fall into this category. This is actually suffering that comes from doing right. Suffering, Suffering from being what God wants you to be. That's a significantly different category. Notice in verse 85, 86, and 87, the psalmist here is suffering because he's doing right. Not because he's done something dumb. Not because he deserves it but because he's done exactly what God would want him to do and to be. And yet he suffers. This is perplexing to us, isn't it? Thinking that I've done everything I can and I'm still suffering? What gives? To to work hard at your job only to be mistreated is confusing and hurtful. Being accused of wrongdoing for being honest is difficult for any of us to take. Being isolated because of your godly behavior, your godly conduct, feels very unfair, doesn't it? And sometimes we lay the blame at God's feet. God, I've done everything you've asked, and look look how I'm being treated. Well, many commentators and scholars believe that this particular stanza, these eight verses, is the lowest point of this psalm. We've read a lot of low points in this psalm. We're, we're told by scholars that this is the lowest it gets, This guy is in utter despair at this point. I've done everything right, God. I've done everything you've asked me to do. And here I am in the middle of this. What is up? God, help. Being treated like this brings on the feelings that he is describing in these eight verses, brings on feelings of hopelessness, brings all kinds of weariness to the experience. Let's look at this weariness that we see in these verses particularly verses 81 through 83 it describes his feelings and and these feelings are poignant he says his soul longs to be saved from his circumstances you can almost feel what the psalmist is describing here if you put yourself in his shoes when, when a person is emotionally or mentally beat down it moves into the physical arena doesn't it have you ever experienced this you're so discouraged so depressed Your body starts to ache. This is normal. And many times it's vice versa. Your body aches and and you're just feeling physically weary. It starts affecting your soul. Have you been there? Most of us have been. If you've gone through some dark times, you know what it means to have your circumstances take a toll, not only on your mind, but on your physical body. It just simply wears you out. And the natural thing to do when you're going through this kind of thing is long for relief. I wish this would just stop already. You ever had those experiences, those feelings? We also have this longing for relief that I've just mentioned. Where is the promise? God, you've promised to be with me. You've promised to strengthen me. you promised to guide me. I don't sense any of those things right now, is what the psalmist could be saying here. It says that his eyes are straining into the dusk into that fading light to see if he can see any relief from his affliction. He says there in verse 82, My eyes long for your promise. He's looking as hard as he can through the mist and darkness, but he just can't seem to see it. This is, I think, pertinent to how many of us feel also. In our pain, our suffering, in our trial, we can remember mentally remember the promises in God's word about help and hope and all the things that God said he would do. And yet our eyes seem to strain through the darkness, through the dusk, to try to make out some glimmer of hope that we're going through. I think we can relate, most of us can relate to this psalmist. In verse 83, he gives us a very interesting uh, word picture. You see it? Verse 83, I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. Most of us may not know what that means. But wineskin is how the people used to carry their drink in the Old Testament. Wineskin was usually made out of goat's uh, pelts, goat skin. And they would fill their, drink with, fill their wineskin with this drink. And when they're done, they would hang the wineskin up in their tent. And in the evening, they would light a fire because it got cold and their tent filled with smoke. And caused damage to the wineskin made it all black and wrinkly and useless he's describing how he's feeling to that old burnt sooty wineskin he's probably sitting there in his tent writing this in his despair looking at a useless wineskin and so that's me that's a really good picture of me right now his character had been smoked with slander his mind parched with persecution and he was afraid that he was useless at this point this is this was common feeling for the people of the old testament at least the people of god in the old testament they had an ongoing yearning of soul they had an ongoing hope that had yet to be fulfilled they looked for the messiah you remember the people of israel they had been beaten down by opposition after opposition They had really a hopeless person, a hopeless existence as people. And yet they were continually told by their teachers and their parents for generation after generation that there was hope because a Messiah would come one day. Messiah will change all this. Messiah is our only hope. And this was, of course, what they looked to. Isaiah 25, for example, verse 9 It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. This is him. This is the Messiah. He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It won't be till he shows up that we're going to get out of this. They would say as a people. If you remember when Jacob finally was reunited with his favorite son, Joseph. Remember that scene in, in Genesis 49? Remember what he said? pretty pretty important he said this in verse 18 i wait for your salvation O lord he knew his his salvation wasn't in his son even though he loved his son dearly even though he had been reunited with him after years of separation jacob was wise enough to know that his only hope was in the lord i wait for your salvation lord my son is great it's good to have good company But only God can save. This continued throughout the Old Testament all the way up to the New Testament. This yearning for the Messiah, this hope and salvation would come one day. These things promised in the Old Testament finally happened. In Luke 2, verses 28 through 30, we have this uh, priest who had been yearning and looking for the Messiah his entire life. And then Mary and Joseph bring this baby called Jesus to be circumcised on his eighth day and Simeon was doing the work and guess what Simeon it was communicated to Simeon through the Holy Spirit that this baby was the one look what he says he took him up that is he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said Lord Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. It finally happened. The Savior finally came. It wasn't just Israel's Messiah. It just wasn't Israel's Savior. It's your Savior and mine. And we in a sense look forward to the ultimate salvation that we'll experience through Christ one day. I mean we certainly have our sins forgiven now and we're saved now. We have a relationship with God now and all the promises are true now, but there yet remains this fulfillment out there, isn't there, that will one day come to fruition? One day we will see Jesus face to face, and we all look forward to that day because we know that day, in that day, all our pains and sorrows will be gone, all this distress will be over with. We all look to that day. The Apostle John quoted Jesus in Revelation 22, verse 20. At the very end of the canon, the very end of the Bible, all God's revelation of himself to us, uh, John recorded this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen, John says. Come, Lord Jesus. You look forward to that day? Huh? You look forward to that day when all these things will be gone and everything... You know, I've noticed that uh, the older I get, the more important this truth is to me. I'm not certain why that is. Maybe it's because my knees ache more than they used to. Um, maybe it's because, you know, you, you, you store up all these distresses and pains and sorrows knowing that the only solution is Christ. I remember praying uh, when I was a young man before I was married, Lord, just don't come back till I get married. Let me get married first. And then, Lord, just don't come back until... I have a child, at least a healthy one. Lord, please hold off on this returning thing until fill in the blank. Now I'm saying cut with John, come, please, come, Lord Jesus. Now would be good. Now would be good. This is because we have all, no matter what our spiritual maturity, we have all experienced distress. And we know Because we believe the Bible that the only hope is Christ, His ultimate return. Says this in First Thessalonians five eight, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Isn't that a great hope, Christian friend? One day we'll see Jesus face to face, and all these things, all these troubles. All these difficulties will be gone. That is our great hope. What is the cause of all this distress? You know, I've mentioned a few things already, but let's focus on verses 84 through 87. I want you to notice here, and I've, I've, I've listed some, some points here for you to fill in on your bulletin, but I'm just going to work through these quickly. You'll notice as you read these few verses, 84 to 87, that this man's been unfairly treated. Right? He's been a good neighbor, and yet he's getting mistreated. And it's not just by that odd person at the end of the street. It's by family. It's by friends. Maybe in our experience, by our employers, by our partners, by our teammates, classmates. And I want you to note this important but basic truth. You have to be living right to be treated unfairly. If you're not living right, you're not being treated unfairly. You're being treated as you deserve. So the only way that you can identify with the psalmist here is to live right. But he was being unfairly treated by people that he knew and loved. Secondly, I think we can see from these words here that he was being slandered. He said what they were saying was false. That's slander. Lied about. And it seems like he had no ability to correct the lies. Verse 86. And this usually comes from some form of untrue gossip. Did you hear about? Did you know? And then some lie and the damage is taking place as we speak. So he's being unfairly treated, he's being slandered against, he's literally in verses 85 and 87 being destroyed. He fears destruction, personal destruction. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to make it out alive, there in verse 87. You know, in his case it may be physical, I might actually die, but he's certainly referring to his reputation, it's been completely destroyed have you ever felt this the the crushing weight of ruined reputation that you can't fix and and anytime you open your mouth to try to defend yourself it gets worse that's what he was feeling what do you do in those circumstances where do you turn he evidently says let's just wait and see what God does (laughs) that's not American right It's un-American. What do you mean, wait? We're doers. We take care of it. we go out there and defend ourselves, kind of thing. I think there's little that is more difficult for an American just to wait. Our, Our counsel for someone going through these things is, well, what have you done about it? Right? But this man wants to wait we might counsel to fight, to defend, to get vengeance. But the psalmist is just waiting. Waiting on the Lord to do what he needs to do, what only he really can do, to right wrongs. That's really hard for us, isn't it? To wait. And this is what it seems is bringing him distress. I'm waiting, God. I'm still waiting. When is something going to change? Seems to be... In view look at with me Micah 7 9 the prophet says something similar I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him I know that what I'm getting I deserve I now understand it but he's gonna plead my cause and he's gonna execute justice for me he'll bring me out to the light I shall look upon his vindication and then the psalmist in Psalm 130 verse 5 I wait for the Lord, my soul waits in his word, I hope. For the believer, our distress may come from our physical enemies, but in our day, much of our distress comes from the constant barrage that this world levels against us and the worldly desires that kind of just linger in our soul because of our sin nature. And all this just wears us out and beats us down. What are we going to do? Wait? Well, let's see what the psalmist says. Let's look at verse 88. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the, pro- the testimonies of your mouth. What a, a beautiful response to distressing circumstances. With our physical enemies, the world would have us take revenge, to set the record straight, to get even, The world may also encourage us to just get away or to use a sedative or go spend some money. That will help. With our spiritual enemies, we're just tempted to roll over and give in when we get really tired of the fight. But notice again the stance of the psalmist. He simply looks to God for help. He looks to God for justice. He waits and reminds himself that God is his only hope in your steadfast love in your steadfast love. Give me life St. Ambrose st. Jerome many of the ancients Believed and taught that there was significance to the shape of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet They believed that God had orchestrated the writing of the Hebrew alphabet alphabet, to communicate something just by the shape of the letters. Now, this is different than numerology, believe me. Alright, this is actually looking at what God has designed in in the Hebrew alphabet using the constructors of the alphabet to communicate something about our need and God's sufficiency. This is the case here. The kaf, which is the Hebrew letter that is titling this particular stanza is, looks like a backwards half circle. Is it on the overhead? Can you see it? Put it up on the overhead, overhead guy. (laughs) Do you see it? That's the cough. St. Ambrose, St. Jerome said, there is two significant points to this. It looks like cupped hands turned over. You see it? It looks like a cupped hand. You turn it sideways, and it is basically an empty hand waiting to be filled. It's also, Jerome and, and Ambrose said, a full cup f- coming from God to fill our empty cup. They envisioned God's hand full of blessing, stretching towards a needy person. They also talked about this being the actual physical shape of a body who's Penitent, laying down before God, seeking his favor. So what we see in this stanza is the author doing just this, pleading with God for blessing, for help. God, you must work. You must act. God, please help me. Everything we receive is a gift of God. We simply stretch forth our empty hands. In our worship services, here at Sun Valley Church, God is here to minister to you. You are called to worship by God. You are called to worship so that he can serve you. The worship service is called a worship service not because we're serving him, but because in this context he's serving us. We simply come with empty hands. He comes with full hands and blesses and serves us as we need. He intends to meet us here to give to bless to fulfill and the hope of the believer is that God in his steadfast love will do these things for us here we come here by faith verse 88 is a wonderful elixir isn't it in his steadfast love we find the life the vitality the strength the vigor to bear up under the affliction That we're facing, to conquer the sin that is tempting us, to recognize Satan's tricks so that we might avoid him. This is what's taking place when we come to the Word. This is what's taking place when we come to the service of the Word. It's a very challenging thing to do, but we must wait on the Lord. I want you to know something about waiting it's not a passive thing. We think that waiting is just sitting around, you know, doing nothing, like waiting for the bus to show up. No. Waiting in a biblical sense is very active. And that's what I think I want you to see here in verse 88. With the the steadfast love of God comes His understanding of the truth of all things. God knows the lies that are being told about you. God knows the reputations that have been ruined. God knows the physical suffering that we're going through. He knows the temptations that are facing us. He has been himself through temptation, has he not? You remember those stories of Christ in the, in the wilderness? He's been through temptation. He's been through some unmerited suffering. He's a faithful high priest who's been there before us and he is the same one who cures our distress as we wait on him waiting is not passive in this stanza the cough stanza which is a, simply an acknowledgement of a need an open hand we see a hope for his word a hope that God will minister to us through his word Every verse, except verse 84, mentions the importance of God's Word in our distress. In fact, verse 84 is the first verse in this entire psalm that the Word of God isn't directly mentioned. Every other verse up to this point has taken him 84 verses to miss mentioning the Word of God as an answer to our distress. It is clear that the author has made it hit the point or the focus of his response to his distressed God's word is where I find hope. We see this all over scripture. Let me just point out a few Romans 12:12. 12, 12. Paul says, "Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer." That's waiting on the Lord. God's word guides us during our affliction, through our distress. Psalm 56, 3 through 4. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What a wonderful response to distress, to being mistreated. You see, God's Word is designed by God Himself for His people as we go through these dark times. Next we see, waiting on the Lord includes remembering His love. Let your steadfast love give me life. He hadn't forgotten that God was a loving Savior. He he was reminded that God is a loving God. Now, as we think theologically about the love of God, we know that the love of God is an umbrella for many other topics that lie underneath that, right? For his kindness, his mercy, his provision, his forgiveness. These all fall under the umbrella of the love of God. And so when the, when the psalmist says, in your steadfast love give me life, he's referring to these things. All these things will bring me hope. Because God loves us, he is for us. You're familiar with this familiar verse here. Lamentations 322. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You remember that verse? Have you ever repeated that verse in a dark time? If you haven't, you ought to. Write it down, put it on your fridge, if that's a dark place in your home. So what does waiting mean? What is the cure for this faithful man's distress? God's word. God's love. Thirdly, God's spirit. God's spirit. Verse 83 implies this beautiful connection we have with God. For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. Usually that's the first thing we forget, isn't it? How is it that this guy had not forgotten? How is it that you and I, in our darkness, remember a verse? Remember a promise? Or called by a friend? How does this happen, Christian? May I suggest that the Holy Spirit is involved in your memory? Yes. Jesus said this was exactly what he would do. He said, in your dark times, he will remind you of things that I've taught you. So his spirit is involved in this meeting of need, this empty hand. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans about the Holy Spirit's involvement in ministering to your distressed soul. 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Who's going to give you hope? The Holy Spirit will give you hope. And then Romans 5, verse 4 and 5. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God love has been poured out into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Friends, the Holy Spirit is critical to get you through distress, through hard times. We wait on God by going to his word, by remembering his love, by fellowshipping with his spirit, and fellowshipping with his church to round this out for you. So how is it that fellowshipping with God's people, the church, actually aids in my distress? Helps me through my distress. Well, you're experiencing one of those things right now. It's called the apostolic teaching. I am not an apostle. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is, what I'm teaching you is what the apostles taught that first century church. This has been handed down generation after generation. And when you come here on Sunday morning, you're hearing what the first century church heard being taught about God's word. So, what this means is you must be here. (laughs) You must participate with us to benefit from the apostolic teaching. We also have the one and others that are gifts to the church. You're going through things. There's other people in this building who've gone through those same things and they help you through them. They comfort you. They encourage you. They direct you and guide you. They pray for you. This is what God has designed for a church to be connected to one another on a significant level. There's over 35 one another's in the New Testament where we are supposed to be designed to be involved in each other's lives because we all go through this stuff together. You're not experiencing something unique to you in your struggle with sin or your struggle with you know pain or sorrow or weakness. This is something others in this room, maybe multiple people in this room, have already gone through. And are more than willing to help you, pray for you, walk with you through it. The one and others. And then, of course, we have the ordinances, the sacraments. Those two wonderful gifts from God given to His church by Christ. One of which we experienced this morning. In this baptism, you were reminded of God's love for you. You're reminded of what Christ did for you to accomplish your salvation. Die on the cross for your sin. Be buried and risen from that grave the third day to conquer sin, to conquer death. So we have the church designed to bring to you the apostolic teaching, to exercise the one another's to encourage each other through this difficult Christian life. And then these ordinances, these sacraments Things that don't say, but that remind us of our salvation, to lift our sagging hearts and to strengthen our spirits. Friends, the church is such a critical element to your hope. So I want to use a, a short acrostic here, if I could, or an acronym to help you remember how we should respond to rough times. Now, you're going to say, John, you've misspelt rough. And I'm going to ask for grace, all right? This is an acrostic. First is remember his love. Remember his love. You want to make it through the darkness? better remember that God, God is love and that he loves you. Secondly, use his word. Use his word. And then finally, fellowship with his spirit and his church. Rough. You going through rough times? Remember God's love. Remember his word. Fellowship with his spirit and his church. These are how God is going to get you through distress. These are things that are mentioned by the psalmist. What a blessing we have. A God, a savior, whose cup is full. And he wants nothing more to do than to let it pour over into our empty cup.